Someone said of, of General Thomas Stonewall Jackson that he was a man who fought by the Old Testament and lived by the New. I'm not sure who said that or if Jackson said that of himself, but I know Jackson was a deeply devout man. And that's about the last thing we're going to say about Stonewall Jackson tonight. Because there's something about the thing that he said that I believe is a sentiment that's reflected uh, and fairly common among believers. And that is that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. Do you feel that way? We know theoretically and theologically and intellectually that God is the same today and yesterday and forever. We know that. But do you see God differently in the way he dealt with people in the Old Testament versus today in our lives? That's what we're going to spend our time on tonight. We're going to show and look at some random Old Testament stories and some random scriptures out of New Testament and some random thoughts out of my head, and we're going to bring it all together into an application for answering the question, is God the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament the same God? So let's start in Judges chapter 6 and 7 with the story of Gideon. You're probably familiar with the story. If you're not, I'll hit it from about 50,000 feet. Israel had sinned greatly against God, and God had given Israel over to the Midianites for seven long years, and it was miserable. Over that period of time, Israel repeatedly cried to God for help, and repeatedly God ignored. But after about seven years, God heard their cry, and he called Gideon. And in the conversation between God and Gideon, Gideon questioned whether God really loved his people, Israel or not. And God told Gideon that he, Gideon, would lead Israel to a great victory over Midian. I should have listened to what Gideon said. He objected, claiming that he was the weakest in his father's house. And his family was the weakest from the tribe of Manasseh. And we all know that Manasseh was one of the smaller, less formidable tribes. But God said, I will be with you. And so later in chapter 7, God told Gideon to assemble an army. And he assembled over 32,000 men who were ready to fight. And God said, what? That's way too many. That wasn't near the size of the army they were facing, but God said, that's way too many. And so he told Gideon, tell the ones that are scared they can go home. And when the dust settled, they had about 10,000 that were left. So about two-thirds of the, of the men left. And God said, that's still way, way too many. And so he ordered Gideon to take the men down by the creek or the river to get a drink. And you know the story. Those that lapped water like a dog, God sent home. And those that didn't, God kept for his army. And at the end of the day, of the 32,000 that started, there were 300 that were available to fight Midian. And so Gideon, doing what God said, 
divided his army into three groups, and he issued them their weapons, pitchers, torches, and trumpets. You're not going to see these on the Military History Channel. They surrounded Midian and did the plan that, that was executed, and Scripture says the Midianites were defeated at that place. Second Chronicles chapter 20, if you want to follow along. This is a story of Jehoshaphat, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but pretty close. He was the king of Judah. <clears throat> Word came to him that many of his enemies and the nations around had gathered and gathered their armies and combined their armies to destroy Judah. And Jehoshaphat knew that any destruction of Judah would include what? A destruction of Jerusalem. And any destruction of Jerusalem would include a destruction of the temple. And so Jehoshaphat cried out, God, you promised this land to your people. What are you doing? We are power, powerless against this great horde, but our eyes are on you. And I love this. God told Jehoshaphat to send the people out to meet the enemy. And he said, tell them they don't have to fight. He told them just march out to the enemy and sing. Pitchers, trumpets, torches, singing. And it says when the people started singing praises to God, the enemy armies became confused. And guess what? They wiped each other out. And it says in Scripture, until no soldier was left. Second Kings chapter 6, the story of Elisha. He had messed up the plans uh, of Syria for so many years that he was a marked man. They had put a hit out on him, and so he had been hiding. They couldn't find him. He hid in this village called Dothan. And all of a sudden, these armies from Syria gathered, and they surrounded the hills around Dothan. Well, Elisha's servant went outside one day, and, or maybe one night, and he saw the campfires. And he knew who it was, and he knew what they wanted. And he scared to death. He ran back in the house, and he told Elisha what was going on. And he said, what are we going to do? And Elisha said, our army's bigger than that. And the servant says, I don't see any army. And it says in Scripture that God opened his eyes, that Elisha opened the servant's eyes. And the servant went back outside, and he looked, and he saw in the mountains around there horses, chariots of fire, and soldiers, far more than what he had seen with his human eyes. Well, what happened at the end of that story was, <clears throat> that Elisha prayed not to kill those soldiers, and so God blinded them. And then Elisha marched them into Samaria to the army of Israel, and they were captured. But again, God's enemies and the enemies of God's people were defeated in that place. And finally, Judges chapter 5, the story of Jericho. Shortly after deliverance from Egypt 
God brings the people across the Jordan, and the first test is to attack the great fortified city of Jericho. And you know how, what weapons they used in this one, right? They marched around the city one time each day for six days and kept their mouth shut. And on the seventh day, they marched around seven times, and they all screamed. And what happened? The walls fell. And so did Jericho. And the reason I bring this up is a few days later, they encountered a much smaller, less fortified city of Ai. And I assume that's how you pronounce it. It's spelled Ai. So Ai. They encountered this smaller, less fortified city, and they decided they didn't need God. They had their own plan. And so they set up a plan, they went about it, and guess what? The Israel army, the mighty Israeli army, was routed, had casualties, because they had not consulted God. And the scripture says, their heart melted and ran like water. Now, these are just four stories, but in my mind, they're connected. And I think you can see that as well. But a lot of the times when I hear a story or think about the Old Testament stories that I grew up hearing, I think about a God who is much more into special effects. I think about seas parting and bushes catching on fire and voices coming out of burning bushes. And I think about fire raining down from heaven. And I think about rivers turning into blood. And I think about plagues ascending upon entire nations. Big stuff. And there was some big stuff in this. But you also saw in these stories, you saw stories about God's grace. And God's deliverance. And his mercy. And his provision for his people. There's one consistent theme that the reason I chose those stories, there's one consistent theme that comes, comes up in this, and that is when the situation is absolutely hopeless from the people's perspective, that's when God does his best. Do we want to believe that he doesn't anymore? Do we want to believe that that God has retired? No. The more impossible the situation, the more God is apt and willing to act. Think about what he said to Gideon. There's too many. And again, there's too many. And then he spells it out for him. There's no way, he says, that I am going that you're not going to know who did this. Because what God doesn't do is share glory with me and you and anybody. And so if there's any way that this, could, this victory could have been attributed to a great military campaign or something like that, a, the brains of a general or something like that, God wasn't going to have any part of it because when they chose their own plan, God made sure that failed. These are just things that I think about sometimes.
failure is inevitable when there is trust in man. And success occurs only when our trust is in God. So, do we believe that God is more tolerant of sin? This question came up in Bible class this morning. Is God gone soft? Old Testament's full of ground opening up and people going into the ground because they sinned against God. You don't read about that too much now, do we? Has God gone soft? Has he gone to sleep? Does he not care as much? Sure he does. If you're in the shout class, some of you are, and I appreciate you being here. We've been going over the last 11 or 12 weeks, we've been going through the first three chapters of the, uh, the gospel according to Paul, the book of Romans. And in chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 17, states that the righteousness of God is revealed in this gospel that Paul's not ashamed of. And it's a righteousness by faith. And what is faith if it's not trust? Hold that thought. Then he says in verse 18 that something else is being revealed, and that is the wrath of God against all unrighteousness is being revealed. Not will be revealed, is being revealed. And he goes on in chapter 1 to describe the things that human beings are doing that is worthy of incurring the wrath of God and simply says, simply said it is suppressing the truth of God, stealing his glory. Specifically, he says, they do not honor God. They do not thank God. They exchange their trust and satisfaction from the creator where it's supposed to be to an image or the creature. And then he says in verse 28 of chapter 1, they don't approve of having God in their mind, much less exalt him as the most valuable thing there is. That's suppressing the truth. That's what he says in chapter 3 that all human beings are guilty of. All have sinned and fall short of the, God, of the glory of God. That seems pretty Old Testament to me. God's wrath against my minimizing or trying to share glory with God? That seems pretty Old Testament. But such is the God of the New Testament as well. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7 says it this way, We were all made for the glory of God. And when we live up to that, we fulfill the purpose of our creation. It is our purpose, it is our task, and it is our existence. Lamentations 3, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Do you know what that means? We don't say that much anymore. Somebody is my portion. Do you know what that means? He is everything. He is everything. God is where we are trying to be, not heaven. Heaven is where God is. 
it's not forgiveness of sins that we want. It's God that we should want. And when we don't, and when we dismiss him, and when we minimize him, it tends to make him angry. So I want to look at some verses in the New Testament as well. There is a concept in the New Testament. We all call it truth. But there is a difference, in my opinion, uh, of simple truth and universal truth. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. He will love one, hate the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. That's a simple truth, but it's also a universal truth. Because there's a whole lot more application to no one can serve two masters than just man and money. And that's what he says in Matthew 6, and that's what he's talking about. And what is that about? Trust. Right? That's what no one can serve two masters. They can't. What do you depend on? What are you counting on? What are you, de- or what are you depending on? It is God or your money. But we can't, written some other things down here too. There are endless applications of this. We can't serve rebellion and submission. We can't serve pride and humility. We can't serve sin and righteousness. We can't serve self and God. And they're all about trust. Every one of those is about where we get our hope, where we get our security, what we are depending on. But right after he says, um, in, in, in Galatians chapter 6, look there, the first what I call universal truth that Paul writes about in verse 7 is that God is not mocked. Make sense? It means he's not conned, he's not toyed with, he's not tricked. God knows everything, especially our hearts. So if we think that we can pull the wool over him and say we trust him, when we don't, he knows. He knows our hearts and he knows what we really trust and what we count on and depend on. He cannot be mocked. And right after that phrase in the same text... Paul clarifies specifics about another way that God is not mocked. And he says, whatever you sow, you will reap. You get that? That is a universal truth. It's a universal truth within this world. And I know you get the agricultural agricultural reference. If you want tomatoes, you plant tomatoes. If you want corn, you don't plant potatoes. Right? Common sense. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And here's the cool thing. We're sowing and reaping at the same time. Right now. You are reaping and I am reaping the things that we sowed in the past. And we are also sowing the things that we will reap in the future. We want a strong congregation? Sow a strong congregation. We want a strong home, a strong marriage, a strong parent-child relationship, a strong relationship with God. Sow it. Specifically in Galatians 6, Paul says, you can't sow to the flesh and to the spirit. What is that? We're back to that trust thing again. 
You can't sow to the flesh, whether it's your flesh or somebody else's, as your hope and your guide. You have to sow to the Spirit, which is God. He says there very clearly, if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption, unrighteousness, and mortality. And he says if you reap to, if you sow to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. Maybe it's easier to see in a physical application. I stand here before you as someone for the last 40 years has not sown health and diet and exercise. Haven't been horrible, but if I'd have spent the last 40 years in a gym and eating right and sown that kind of stuff, I wouldn't look like I do today. But no, I sowed red meat and carbohydrates and Whataburger and barbecue, and I look like that. Because there's a universal truth that whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Somebody says, go out and sow your wild oats. Oats, guess what you're going to reap? Wild oats. This is a spiritual lesson that's easily seen in the physical context. But if we want to reap eternal life, I, if I want to reap eternal life, I must sow to the Spirit. If I want to reap mortality and unrighteousness, I sow to the flesh whether that's in our homes, in our congregations, or in our own personal lives. Remember, God is not mocked. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve the flesh and the spirit. A couple of quick stories that illustrate this point. This is the way the thoughts go. Matthew 19. You've heard of the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Man, he's got it all. Rich, young, and in charge, right? He comes to Jesus and says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? You hear what he's saying? What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he says, I do. Keep them all. And Jesus says, what? Sell everything you got. Why did he say that? If we're saved by keeping commandments, why didn't he say, good, good job? What he said to him was, sell everything you got, because what he knew about this rich young ruler was that his identity and his, his, his whole self was, in, was, in, was captured in what he owned. That was who he was. He had been very successful at that. He had been successful at, being, at making money and gathering possessions so much that he didn't need God. You know how I know he didn't need God? It says he went away sad. Because he could not sell his possessions. John chapter 6. In the same passage where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He said to the, to the Jews that had gathered there, stop working for food that perishes and start working for the food that leads to eternal life. And they ask a really good question. Tell me what works of God. What should I be doing to work the works of God? And what did Jesus say? Believe. Trust. That's the work of God. Trust. 
And that's what he answered them absolutely directly. And then finally, in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, says he, Jesus said, here's a parable about two men, about a man who thought he could trust in himself to be righteous and who looked with contempt at other men. And then it tells the story of a Pharisee that went up to the temple and he was so important. By the way, you know what the word Pharisee means? I didn't know this till this week and I'm nearly 60 years old. I thought it was a political group. It's the word for set apart, holy. That's what they thought of themselves. And he was so holy that he couldn't even stand in, with the round with those, that rabble-rousing other people that weren't set apart. It says he's standing by himself, and he's reading his resume to God. I do this, I do that, I do this, and I thank you that I'm not like these others. And it says the other man couldn't even lift his head. He couldn't even look up. He just beat himself on the chest and said, Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. What are they trusting in? What was the Pharisee trusting in? Himself. Well, Jesus said this is the point of this story. They trusted in themselves for righteousness. What was the, what was the other man trusting in? Have mercy on me, a sinner. He's trusting on God. And what's funny is the answer that Jesus says at the end of that. He doesn't say one went to his house more justified than the other. He says one of those men went to his house justified. And that was the one that said, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see how all this kind of fits together? The people in Gideon, it's about trusting God. The people marching around Jericho, it's about trusting God. God is not mocked. He knows who we are. So let's look at, as we close this out, let's look at a couple of things here. I want to ask some rhetorical questions that see if this takes you where it took my head. I'm going to ask it about myself. You ask it about yourself. Yeah, I hate for somebody to stand up and say, do you? I'm going to say, do I? Do I believe in God or do I believe God? There's an interesting three verses in John chapter 2 where they had seen him perform some signs and it says many of the people believed in him because of what they'd seen. But it says, but Jesus on his part, for his part, did not believe in them. Your version may say, did not entrust himself to them. But the word is exactly the same for faith. They did not, he did not believe that they believed. There's a difference. James says the demons believe in God and they shudder. Jesus said right here, many believe in God. The question is, do you believe God? Do you believe he's on vacation? Do you believe he's not capable? Do you believe he's quiet and not as powerful as he used to be? Number two, do I trust God? Do I trust myself or something else? And number three, do I value God more than anything else in my life? And if you said yes to any one of those questions, if I answered yes to any one of those questions, the question is, do my, does my life support those answers? 
You ever felt helpless with a situation in your life? Were you asking God to help you with the plan and the solution that you'd come up with? Were you asking God, maybe this is a little better, to use you to fix the problem? But how easy was it, no matter if the problem was bad enough, how easy was it for you to sit back and let God solve this problem and use you if he needed to and not use you if he didn't and you trust that it was going to be taken care of? That's hard. I've had way more experience with that than I care to imagine. And I was so prideful and I was so stubborn that it didn't take one or two things to get my attention that I was trusting in me. It took seven, seven situations in my life that I could not handle before I said, I give. Don't be that stubborn. Learn to say, uncle, way before It's seven different things. It's not going to always be comfortable. And just because you're having some rough waters in your life doesn't mean that you have sowed bad seed in the past. Sometimes God disciplines his children. Sometimes circumstances are bad. But if your hope and your trust is in a God that is as powerful as the God that you see and you know... It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Your hope is not in circumstances. Your hope is in him. We've got to be that way just in case. We've got to trust him and we've got to keep our eyes on him just in case he might ask us to leave everything we know and go to a place that he will show us. Or he might ask us to build a boat in the middle of the desert. He might ask us to plead his case before the most powerful man on earth and then ask us to lead a million wine bags across the desert for 40 years. He might ask us to fight a giant soldier with a slingshot or take on some other battle when we think we have no chance. He might use our fish and our loaves to feed a multitude of people. He might dab our eyes with spit and dirt and give us sight for the first time in our life. He might tell the storm to stop when our boat's about to turn over. He might tell us his grace is sufficient. Don't put human human limits on our sovereign, omnipotent God. Let's not assume he is less active today or that he's less powerful today. The God that did and does all these things is the God that for some reason is interested in your life and mine. He values us and he knows our hearts. The rich young ruler, he never was helpless. He was comfortable. When you're comfortable, you don't need God. The Pharisee in the temple... He was comfortable. Are we too comfortable to be dependent? I hope you'll think about that this week. And I would use 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, 
We are ambassadors for Christ as if God himself were making an appeal to you through us. Be reconciled to God.